They say plants like music. Yeah, no, like really, they, they respond to the vibrations of it, which means that this playlist you're listening to, the plants are too. You know what else plants like? Organic soil from miracle Grow. It's made with all the best stuff like wood fiber and compost. Plus, it's Omri certified organic, which officially means it's made with superior ingredients. And when you give your plants the stuff that makes them happy, they won't judge you on your iffy playlist. Hear that, plants? So go ahead and give them miracle Grow. Welcome to Pod Save the World. I'm Ben Rhodes, and I am uh, very sad that I'm not joined, as always, by one of my best friends and and my co-host uh, and the the founder of of this entire enterprise, uh, not just this podcast, but but Crooked Media, uh, Tommy. Um, for those of you who don't know by now, who haven't seen his post on Instagram or or listened to, to Pod Save America, he's just been going through an, an unspeakable uh, tragedy. Uh, Tommy and his wife, Hannah, just a few days ago, lost their baby daughter at 24 weeks, got to hold her. I, I, I encourage you to look at, at, at Tommy's Instagram post, which was uh, an incredibly courageous of, of them to share that, that story and that information because they know it's something that other people go through that, that people don't always talk about. And, and as Tommy references in, in one of his posts, it, it's all the more tragic for them because this is... Uh, They've had miscarriages uh, before. They've been really battling to reach the point where they were so close. Um, and, and all I can say is that, uh, you know, one of the reasons I love doing this particular show is you get a sense that, you know, there's a community around it. And we joke about it sometimes, uh, uh, the world though community, but... Um, I've met people around the world uh, who listen to this podcast, and that's a reflection really of Tommy's personality more than mine. He's such an open and inclusive person, uh, as you guys hear every week. Uh, not just kind of funny, not just entertaining, but genuinely searching, genuinely curious, genuinely interested in the underdog. And I just want to say that I've gotten messages, and I know Tommy's gotten a lot from people who listen to this show, who are worried about him and Hannah, who care about them, who just want to let them know that that you're thinking of them. And I want to thank you all uh, on his behalf for, for, for those messages. I know they mean a lot to them. Um, it, it's helped them through this uh, terrible time. It's lifted them up. Uh, 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 and um, And I know how much it means to him to do this show. So thank you for, for that. Um, and uh, I know that Tommy and Hannah also have encouraged people who want to do something. And this is another thing that, that Tommy's always done, encourage people to do something. There, there's several organizations that they would point you to if you want to make a, a, a relevant donation for, for people um, who've dealt with similar issues as, as they're dealing with now. Baby to Baby, which is a, a nonprofit here in Los Angeles that helps provide children living in poverty with with diapers and clothes and other necessities. The Star Legacy Foundation, which is a nonprofit dedicated to reducing pregnancy loss and neonatal death. And Baby Quest Grants, which is a nonprofit providing fertility grants to those who can't afford costly procedures like IVF and, and egg freezing. So check out those organizations. Um, uh, we, we've got them up on uh, on social media channels. I think uh, you know Tommy's going to take a little time away as as he should. Um, we'll have some guest hosts. We'll do some some different things in the coming weeks, um, and look forward 
to that and obviously to, to when Tommy can get back in the chair. Today, um, we are going to hear from two really extraordinary guests. Catherine Belton, who's really the leading investigative journalist who's looked into who Vladimir Putin is, who his circle is, how he came to power, how he sustains power, starts in the KGB days and, and takes us up to the present. And then Jana Nemsova. Uh, those of you who read my book After the Fall know that Jana was a character in that book. Her father, Boris Nemtsov, was once the deputy prime minister of Russia, a leading opponent, uh, an outspoken critic of Vladimir Putin who was assassinated in the shadow of the Kremlin. Uh, and Jana has been an activist and a journalist herself. And so Jana can give us a perspective of, of Russian and how have Russians looked at Putin, how are Russians looking at the situation uh, in Ukraine today. So um, uh, today's an opportunity to kind of go deep on this question of who is Putin? What is he thinking? Uh, what is this all about? And, and, and hopefully from that, we could discern something about where this is going. I'm just going to touch a bit on the, the the context in the news. I will say we'll cover these stories going forward. There's some very positive signals coming out of the administration about the likelihood of potentially reaching uh, an Iran deal 2.0. Um, so we're watching that, but the, the, the signals are good thus far. And I think the ball appears to be in the Iranian court. It feels like the U.S. has made a very credible offer and, and they're close. Uh, so that's good. Boris uh, Johnson um, doesn't continue to party, but um, we'll be watching that because uh, the initial report about his partying came out and it was about as bad as you'd think. So uh, he's currently trying to weather the storm in part by uh, trying to be as tough a guy as he can uh, on Ukraine. Uh, but uh, it may have been one party too many for, for Boris. The latest on Ukraine to just set this up um, today, uh, Vladimir Putin made his first comments about his standoff uh, over Ukraine. Uh, in more than a month, Putin's been kind of uh, oddly absent. Um, he was appearing uh, after a meeting with fellow autocrat um, Viktor Orban. Uh, big surprise there that 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 would be his buddy from Europe that he wants to hang out with uh, these days. Uh, Viktor Orban fresh off hanging out with Tucker Carlson, uh, who did a few more shows in Budapest. Putin said that the U.S. and its allies have ignored Russia's top security demands, referencing the written responses that Russia received uh, from the United States a few days ago. And so fairly negative Putin-esque response, dismissive. Uh, the Kremlin spokesman, Dmitry Peskov, uh, who's a pretty reliable mouthpiece for Putin, so therefore a window into how they're at least trying to buy for time, uh, told uh, reporters that Russian officials are still drafting their formal response to the American formal response, and that it's aimed at de-escalating the Ukraine crisis, uh, and that they'd be ready to deliver those responses as soon as Mr. Putin sees fit. So clearly the ball is still in Putin's court. The Russians simultaneously saying that their demands you know, for NATO to pull back from Eastern Europe and to, to never uh, entertain the possibility of Ukraine joining NATO, the those uh, those demands have obviously not been met, but um, you see Putin and the Russian government leaving itself a little wiggle room to continue negotiating and, and potentially take a path of de-escalation. President Zelensky of Ukraine has been a bit all over the map. We saw him downplaying the threat uh, of an invasion uh, a few days ago. Just today, he said, though in warning about what the war would be, this is not going to be a war between Ukraine and Russia. This is going to be a European war, a fully-fledged war, uh, that is, if Russia invades his country. Um, so you see him once again trying to broaden this beyond uh, it just being a matter for Ukraine and it being a matter for the West and the entire world, really. 
You know, it, it's interesting. I probed some friends in Ukraine about this question of why the Ukrainian political leadership feels, uh, or at least has been saying, uh, that they're less concerned about an actual invasion. And is that just trying to project calm, trying to not freak people out, trying to not tank the economy? And I got a sincere answer back from people that I know are kind of close to the Zelensky circle, too. And their basic take was that they really don't think that Putin's intention has been to invade Ukraine all along, that that what they read is uh, Putin was seeking to build up these troops to get the West to back down and agree to his demands. Um, and they think that to some extent, that's still his hope and his play rather than wanting to, to fully invade the country. Um, and, you know, that maybe if he does something, uh, it would be the more kind of small scale invasion uh, or incursion, as, as President Biden said in that press conference, that kind of bites off another chunk of eastern Ukraine or tries to solidify the status quo where Russia has Crimea um, and these kind of two breakaway chunks of eastern Ukraine that the Russians have been messing around in, but that they don't go further. And in a way, I obviously hope that it's the case that there's not an invasion. One of the reasons why that might be the case is that, you know, one thing you'll hear from our guest today, too, it's quite possible that Vladimir Putin has gotten himself into a position where he could bite off more than he can chew. Uh, he could overreach in ways that could be incredibly damaging to him. And I just point out a few. The first is when Putin did this play back in 2014 and annexed Crimea. Again, he didn't move masses of Russian military force into Crimea. And in some ways, he didn't have to. There is a fairly large pro-Russian population in Crimea. There is a Russian-speaking majority in Crimea. And therefore, a mix of propaganda and influence operations and Russian special forces could, in a fairly pain-free way, pull off that invasion and subsequent annexation of Crimea without a lot of blowback uh, in Russia. Uh, it was a little tougher when Russia began to move some special forces into eastern Ukraine. And Putin, uh, we had indications in the Obama years, would try to cover up um, when Russians were killed in that conflict. He didn't want it to be known back home. Um, but the, the scale of suffering and loss of life was not uh, enormous um, in that case. Whereas if he does what is most worrying and invades Ukraine, he's going to be in a very different set of places than Crimea. He's going to clearly face resistance, resistance from a Ukrainian military that has seven years of low-grade conflict with Russia under its belt, that has received a lot of weapons from not just the United States, but other countries. And so he could be facing a very costly uh, military intervention, which can turn very unpopular very quickly uh, in countries like even Russia. That's part of what brought the Soviet Union down, the invasion uh, of Afghanistan uh, by the Soviets and the, the toll that took. So that's the first point is that um, the military conflict itself, if he does invade Ukraine, could be much bloodier and more costly. I think the second is the Russian economy isn't exactly going gangbusters as it is. The combination of Putin's own kind of kleptocratic model, coupled with the sanctions that they faced after the 2014 invasion and annexation of Crimea, have taken a real toll on Russia. Their capacity to access 
certain technologies, their capacity, in some cases, to access certain funds that have been frozen. Um, you see growth and wages down. Uh, you see a real hit that has already impacted standards of living in Russia and the economic outlook in Russia. And if the sanctions that have been discussed, if even a portion of the sanctions, frankly, that have been discussed by the Biden administration go into effect and the Russian banking sector is hit and suddenly they can't access big chunks of their own money and suddenly they can't access technologies that keep their economy running, he's going to be in a really difficult circumstance. And as we'll hear today in our interview, you know, part of what's kept them in power is things need to be just good enough for the broad populace that unrest can be kept in check. Uh, and you've seen pockets of unrest, frankly, because of the economic circumstances. And you saw Navalny really getting traction with the anti-corruption message. But things have to be just good enough that that can be kept under wraps. But also, there needs to be enough of a pie to take care of this inner circle that he's created of billionaires and security types and creeps and goons that he depends upon. And that pie's already been shrinking. Uh, and if that pie basically goes away because Putin puts all of his chips onto the table on a bet in Ukraine, uh, you could start to see real tensions in the broader public and within the inner circle even. And so this mixture of the military cost and geopolitical costs that could come with invasion and the economic costs that could put at risk his whole model could lead to a situation where the kind of Ponzi scheme that he's built, um, an economy that's really, you know, thrives on oil and gas and <laughs> theft at the top uh, and spreading enough crumbs around, you know, this could really boomerang on him. And I think that's part of what they're considering in the Kremlin. Now, as you'll also hear today, it may just be that the one kernel of actual ideology in the Putin regime and machinery has been the combination of wanting to push back on the West and push back on NATO uh, and to restore a lost greatness from the Soviet Union. And Ukraine would be the exact place to do that. It is the biggest former Soviet republic. It is the buffer between Russia and NATO. It is Historically, the, the neighboring state that has some overlapping cultural and linguistic ties, not in the whole country, but in parts of it. So it may be that Putin will weigh those risks and he'll take the gamble anyway. And he may think, well, I've gambled before in the past and, and it's paid off. But this is something to watch. Um, and really, I think what Putin has to be assessing now is what's more dangerous to me, Vladimir Putin? Is it going into Ukraine? And maybe getting the short-term glory that would come with conquering another chunk of a neighboring country. Is that more dangerous, though, because of the consequences it may invite on me? Or is it more dangerous for me to have built up this massive military force uh, and then to climb down? Um, which goes against uh, everything that he's sought to portray himself as over the years. The strongman, the guy who sets up hockey games where he can score 15 goals because people are too afraid to get in the way of, uh, of his shots. We don't know, and only he knows. But thankfully today, uh, we're going to hear from two people who from a personal standpoint, in Jana's case, and a reporting standpoint, in Catherine's case, they really know as much as any other two people I could think of to talk about uh, this subject of, of who is Putin 
And what does he want? Pod Save the World is brought to you by the UN Refugee Agency. The UN Refugee Agency, or UNHCR, responds to emergencies and provides long-term solutions for refugees. They provide aid in over 130 countries, including Ukraine, Syria, Afghanistan, and Sudan, where people are forced to flee from war and persecution at their greatest moment of need. UNHCR helps and protects refugees by providing food, shelter, medical care, and other life-saving essentials. The agency jumpstarts relief in three key ways. They transport core relief items stored in even the most remote areas of the world. They deploy expert emergency staff trained to help in crisis situations, and they transfer funds directly to support the emergency. Because of generous supporters and donors, UNHCR can scale up its response within 72 hours of a large-scale emergency. Your support helps provide life-saving aid for refugees whenever and wherever emergencies occur. Donate to USA for UNHCR by visiting unrefugees.org slash donation. That's unrefugees.org slash donation. Support for Pod Save the World comes from the International Rescue Committee. The IRC works in more than 50 countries, serving people whose lives have been upended by war, conflict, and natural disasters. In places like Gaza, Ukraine, and Sudan, displaced families are experiencing war, extreme hunger, and life-threatening injuries. In Gaza, ongoing violence, bombardment, and blockade have made survival difficult for families living in damaged buildings and tents. The lack of safe water, medicine, and healthy food contributes to the spread of diseases, and children are especially at risk. The International Rescue Committee is working with local partners in Gaza to provide life-saving medical care to injured civilians. The IRC works around the world to help families in crisis by delivering critical supplies such as therapeutic food for malnourished children, clean water, cash assistance, and more. Your donation will support this work and help children and families survive. Listen, the International Rescue Committee is an incredible organization. They are doing the Lord's work all around the globe. I have donated to them, you know, for many, many years now because I know that my dollar will go towards helping people. It's not going to go to administrative costs or overhead fees. It's just an incredible group doing great work. I hope you'll consider them. Donate today by visiting rescue.org slash rebuild. That's rescue.org slash rebuild. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all carry around different stressors, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Listen, if you're listening to Pod Save the World, you need some therapy. If you're watching the events around the world that might freak you out, got this election coming down the pike, there's a lot of stuff that people uh, are stressed about, that are anxious about, stuff that makes you lose sleep, and therapy can help. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash crookedworld. Go today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash crookedworld. Joining me now is Catherine Belton, who is a special correspondent for Reuters. And she's also the author of the book Putin's People, How the KGB Took Back Russia and Then Took on the West. And before we start, uh, Catherine, I just want to say um, if, if, if there have been a lot of good books written about uh, Putin. Um, I've never read one that uh, is as detailed, uh, as specific um, and and as persuasive in telling the story of how we 
got Vladimir Putin. And I should also add, like as a uh, someone who loves, uh, you know, John le Carre, there there are there are vignettes of writing in there that uh, feel like they could have been lifted out of the very best uh, le Carre. Um, so your book was extraordinarily helpful to me as I was finishing my my book, which has a big section on Putin. And I, I want to recommend everybody uh, pick up your book if they want to know more. But thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. That that's really kind of you to to say. I spent a great deal of time writing it, and it's obviously the the highest honor to be uh, compared in any way to John Le Carre. But probably those moments <laughs> were the ones that wrote themselves because there were certainly a lot of strange and wonderful things that occurred along the way reporting it. So. <laughs> you know. Yeah, I know. I mean, there's some amazing characters and I'll try to get to a little bit of that along the way. I, I wanted to start um, with, you know, getting at this question of, of how did um, we get Vladimir Putin? And you, I think, make a very persuasive case, um, fact-based case, that essentially it arose out of the nature of the KGB that he was a part of um, as a young man in Dresden serving in the KGB at the dusk of the Soviet Union. Um, and I was wondering if you could just uh, ex- explain to listeners, you know, what what the KGB was up to um, in terms of things like money laundering and and kind of uh, you know hacking into capitalism. What what skills did Putin and his circle acquire as the Soviet Union was falling apart that they then kind of took with them into the power grab that that they made at the end of the nineties. Yeah, I think yeah. If you if you look more more closely at what he was up to in Dresden, you can start to see a kind of clear model for how his regime has operated today. Um, Putin in in Dresden was actually already involved in active measures against the West. It seems he was the main uh, liaison officer between the KGB and the Stasi, and uh, one uh, former Stasi officer who defected from who defected to the West uh, has told about how Putin in those days he was trying to acquire uh, poisonous materials from a professor and was trying to do so by planting compromising material on him. We don't know whether he acquired this poisonous material. It was meant to be a type that never left any trace, uh, but the Stasi officer has told of this operation. Uh, Putin was also involved in attempts to uh, uh, smuggle technology from the West, to smuggle stolen technology from the West he was working closely with a guy called Matthias Varnig, uh, who we all know nowadays as the chairman of, of Nord Stream 2, the gas pipeline into Germany. He's a very close co- crony of, of Putin indeed. And back in the day in Dresden, they were working closely together. Uh, Varnig was running a, a cell for uh, disguised as a business consultancy where he was entrapping uh, Westerners into sort of handing over technology to him. And so then there are other kind of curious instances, uh, you know, Putin then is also said to have been handling a notorious neo-Nazi uh, who be, stoked the rise of the far right later on in the eastern Germany. But it, mm-hmm. so Putin was there at a time when, uh, you know, the Soviet Union couldn't compete directly militarily or economically with the West. But what they were very, very good at doing was active measures, which were these kind of covert ops to undermine and so dis- 
disunity in the West. And we see Putin reverting to these tactics today. And it was a time when uh, they also made wide use of front companies. And it was a time when Putin was there, it was already quite clear that there was going to have to be some change, uh, that the communist regime couldn't survive, that the planned economies just weren't working about the West, uh, against the West, that they were really lagging far behind. So they knew the writing was on the wall and they knew things were going to have to change, but they also wanted to preserve their intelligence networks. So at the time Putin was in Dresden, there was a notorious Stasi agent named Martin Schlaff, who had been uh, given uh, uh, the contract to create, a, a build a hard disk plant in Turingen nearby. He was given hundreds of millions of Deutschmarks by the German East German government to build this plant. And yet uh, the components never arrived for this plant. <laughs> uh, you know, the, the, the plant was never finished. And instead, uh, the hundreds of millions of Deutschmarks were siphoned off into a kind of a whirl of front companies in Singapore, Liechtenstein and, and Switzerland, which, you know, mm-hmm. were staffed by Stasi agents. And then when the Berlin Wall fell, uh, Schlaff continued to become uh, kind of a major businessman and his companies were staffed with uh, Dresden's Stasi guys, including the head of the Dresden Foreign Intelligence Unit. And then he went on to become uh, very powerful within uh, Russia's uh, Gazprom empire abroad. So you can see this uh, continuing policy. So Putin was sort of dabbling in these tactics back then, and that was an era when the KGB used front companies known as friendly firms to fund their covert operations in the West. They use it to funnel money so that they could uh, conduct influence operations and to yeah. uh, you know, fund allied political parties, so disinformation so that they win elections uh, in, or try to win elections in places like Italy in the, in the 40s and, and so on. And they were also trying to ferment unrest in the third world and, and so unrest there so as to kind of destabilize the West. So his whole mentality is, is steeped in this great game with the West, where the West is the main adversary and to, to, to compete with it, you undermine it rather than build something constructive of your own. Yeah, and, and but interestingly, right, they they kind of hack capitalism because they the kind of unregulated, unbridled form of you know post Cold War capitalism uh, mixed with their capacity to to uh, launder money and uh, and their capacity to kind of obviously then take over the the organs of the the Russian economy. Uh, it basically arms the KGB with not only a state, but with uh, the wealth that can be afforded from running world companies, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, I, I'm curious that, like, so, um, you know, you traced, you really, you know, get into how this circle of people around Putin from the, the KGB uh, ascends to this position where they're controlling both political power and economic power in 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 Russia. How how have you seen you know in broad strokes the evolution of this system um, that he's built this kind of klep- kleptocratic uh, cabal that he sits on top of? How has that evolved in the the twenty years that he's been the dominant figure in Russia? What what's what's the same and what's different about it today from when uh, he first walked into the Kremlin? 
I guess when he first came to power, many Russians, like many in the West, were really hopeful that Putin was actually a liberal, that he would sort of continue the legacy of Boris Yeltsin and, and move Russia uh, along market lines, that he would integrate Russia in with the West. And I guess that was the great uh, the great mistake of, you know, of the Yeltsin yeah. family who brought him to power and of the West who's kind of helped him along the way. Um, you know, Putin's a bit of... He's a chameleon and he in those days he probably soaked up as as much of his surroundings as he reflected them back so he the Yeltsin family were convinced that he was one of them that he was a liberal that he would sort of continue their mm. their legacy and uh you know and he's very good at pretending to do that and indeed in the first few years uh in office he was you know he was conducting market reforms he was doing all these yeah. sort of sweeping tax cuts privatizing land and and so on and and even talking about Russia one day joining NATO, um, yeah. but um, yeah. which is very strange to think of now. Um, but I guess at the same time, uh, you know, he was he was surrounded by this cabal of KGB men that he brought with him to power. Most of them were sort of Leningrad, St. Petersburg KGB. And in a way, the cabal of KGB that he brought with him to power are much more ruthless, perhaps, than sort of the KGB guys from Moscow, the KGB mm. guys from, from uh, St. Petersburg, where they, you know, they it was Russia's second city, so they had a kind of chip on their shoulder. And I was told by one former Moscow senior KGB officer that just made them more ruthless; that they would stop at nothing to acquire power. And this former KGB guy had worked with Putin for a few years in St. Petersburg, but in the end, he stepped away because he just saw, uh, really, just how kind of power hungry they were and how they were willing to work closely with organized crime, anything to obtain yeah. control of the city's cash flows. So, you know, the I think at, at some point it, it seems it's it's a bit of a, a gradual development, but uh, quite fast Putin grew disappointed in the West. He grew disappointed in this espousal of, of liberal values. I think, you know, one key moment, I guess, is, uh, you know, after he's allowing the US uh, sort of routes through Central Asia uh, to wage war in Afghanistan, you know, yeah. the US still goes ahead and unilaterally withdraws from the anti-ballistic missile treaty that was another disappointment and they and I guess there was just always this deep-seated paranoia the knee-jerk reactions of the KGB guys who when you see NATO expanding eastwards closer to your borders that you just believe that the west is out to weaken and encircle russia and i think another shock moment for him of course was the orange revolution in ukraine uh you know when uh this pro-western revolution topple came to came to power and, and toppled the the guy that they were backing and got rid of yanukovych um i think he he truly believed that this is some kind of western funded revolution that was aimed at encircling Russia uh, and not just actually a real uh, expression of people's free will and a real pro-democracy movement. And it's just this ingrained KGB mindset that just takes over his thinking. And all the while, he's surrounded by these KGB guys from St. Petersburg and the most hawkish of all, Nikolai Patrushev, who was the head of the FSB yeah. at the time and is now the powerful Security Council chief, who was always a bit 
bit more senior than Putin. He's a few years older than him, and he yeah. moved to Moscow uh, much earlier on. Uh, he's quite senior in Moscow FSB from like 94 onwards. And this is the guy who is seen really as the chief ideologue of, of Russia trying to use capitalism against the West as a tool to undermine the West once once they'd acquired control of the, the cash flows at home. Yeah, no, I, I remember in... Um... We went to Moscow in 2009, and Obama did his summit with Medvedev, and Medvedev was putting on this good face to the West and the world, and probably in part because you know the financial crisis has happened, so they 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 uh, they, they were not in, in a position to be as adversarial. But um, after the the official meetings, Obama had to go out to Putin's DACA um, and spend several hours there, uh, which by the way, made him late for some engagements with Medvedev, but Putin didn't seem to care that he was making the president late for the meeting with the president. And all he did is give him the bill of goods about, I wanted to, you know, I wanted a new relationship with the West and here's what I got. And ABM treaty and orange revolution and NATO enlargement. And, uh, you know, some of it was whataboutism, but some of it was clearly something he, he believed. Um, and obviously, Ukraine becomes central to that. In the Obama years, we have the annexation of Crimea. I, I wanted to ask you, I was thinking about this, you know, in, in the sense, you know, you could say, well, Putin has what he needs. He's probably one of the wealthiest, if not the wealthiest men in the world. He has the levers of power in Russia. Um, he has established himself as this figure on the world scene who has to be reckoned with. Um, so why... Why do you think we are where we are? Why this constant escalation in Ukraine? Why the constant uh, drumbeat in Russian media about NATO? Um, is it necessary for him to kind of maintain this machinery of security and kleptocracy that he's built? It, it, you know, Do you see this as something that shores him up politically or do you see it as, as ideological um, uh, in terms of wanting to to maybe even reunify Ukraine with, with Russia. What do you think is is the motivating factor uh, at this point? Yeah, I'm afraid it, it is, in a way, it's ideological, but only in the terms of, of, of great power games and kind of zero-sum thinking that, you know, he, he, he I think he spied an opportunity. I think he thought that the West was going to react weakly. I mean, obviously, the Biden administration has come to power to in a, amid a deeply divided uh, country uh, following Donald Trump's presidency. The U.S. has all kinds of problems now, and he watched the Biden administration withdraw from Afghanistan and perhaps he just uh, spied opportunity um, but it's kind of a crazy gambit to sort of you know build up such a true presence on the border of Ukraine and essentially uh, almost try to frighten in the West into making these security concessions into redrawing the, the post-Cold World uh, security order but I know from my conversations with some of his former KGB Allies that all they have wanted almost since like he came to power is a new Yalta. They want to redraw the post-Cold oh, War yeah. security map and they've kind of seized a moment. And I think some of it though as well, it's it kind of it smacks a bit to me of, of desperation because I think in a way as well, he's been so long in power now. In in some ways it's it's a bit like they've they've kind of run out of road because yeah. you know it's almost like they need this 
constant confrontation with the West in order to shore up their own power at home. Because I, I guess once their only model of, of managing the economy is to take control of cash flows, which means there's no investment, there's just stagnation, there's no competitiveness in the economy at all, because everyone's frightened about the FSB turning up the next day and, and taking over companies and, and so on. So there's been no, no economic growth. Uh, incomes are now 10% lower than they were eight years ago. And he, again, I think he, he's, you can see this kind of, the, their paranoia has been growing the, the longer they've been in power um, in, a, in a sense, because, you know, they've accumulated so much of it, it's, it's impossible to hand it over. So there's no secure way to, to make a transfer of power and in the meantime you know they were watching the the uprising in belarus where this apolitical population suddenly shed its fear of the security services and stood up against lukashenko they had so you could see the clear paranoia in how they handled navalny just so ruthlessly with the the yeah. novichok um so I, th- I think this is they thought this was the opportunity to turn the tables they always see the west's hand in everything do you think there's a risk um, of, of of overreach here in the sense that, you know, as you said, the, the pie has gotten smaller over the years as they've dealt with sanctions and economic stagnation? Um, and, and, you know, uh, uh, unlike Crimea, where you did have a kind of, you know, largely pro-Russian or at least Russian-speaking population, if he goes all the way into Ukraine, he's going to be in, you know, he's going to be facing a resistance that he didn't in 2014. I mean, you know, do you think that some of the people in his circle might be worried that, hey, are we actually about to, for the first time, really bite off more than we can chew? Well, I think you can see quite clearly that he, I think he has miscalculated. I think he expected the the West to come up with concessions much quicker. And I think he's probably has been taken aback by the degree of unity in the West and the sharpness on the sanctions. And you can see that. So last week he was just, just last week he was meeting with the Italian business leaders. This week it's he's supposedly meeting with the German ones. And it almost lo- looks a bit desperate. And then now today he's accusing the U.S. of trying to trap him into into war and uh, w- with the sole aim of containing Russia so that they're trying to drag Russia into a war so it can then slap these incredibly harsh sanctions on him. And that's just absurd. I mean, yeah. how can you be trapped into a war when you put your own <laughs> yeah. kind of hundreds of that hundred thousand troops on the border? So, you know, I think I think there is a sense now that uh they want to step back, um, but it's very difficult to tell whether that was the game all along. There was one kind of mid-level Kremlin official that I spoke to this week, and he's just trying to say, well, you know, we were just raising the stakes so that the West would take us seriously and begin to talk to us as equals and begin this security dialogue. So maybe that's all he wants, and we'll see this quiet withdrawal. But the problem is uh, we know uh, that just how skilled they are at kind of operating so disruptively and kind of unexpectedly. So, you know, obviously the sanctions that the U.S. have proposed, uh, you know, they could be devastating for the Russian economy. Um, This huge war chest that they've supposedly built up, the $630 billion in uh, hard currency reserves could be very quickly eaten up, uh, you know, if the U.S. goes ahead and designates Russian state banks because they'll have to use it all to to bail them out. 
Yeah. So I think I think he has faced a much stiffer response, and and maybe now he's going to have to have some kind of controlled withdrawal, or maybe he just thinks uh, the West actually won't go ahead. I guess everyone's it's like it is a game of poker because each side yeah. thinks the other is is maybe bluffing. So it's really difficult to tell. Yeah. No. I mean, I, I, uh, I unfortunately for the people of Ukraine, they're just yeah. kind of sitting there in the middle. Of the, of the table to extend metaphor. I mean, uh, I, I wanted to ask you about on sanctions, you know, so much of your uh, book, some of the more powerful vignettes take place in London because you have, you know, some oligarchs uh, and former Putin associates had to flee there. Others who are still, you know, in the power circle in Russia just have lavish residences there. There's, you know, they're supported by everything from PR firms to private intelligence networks that are there. Um, what about, I mean, we talked about sanctions as it relates to things like banks and the Russian economy writ large. You followed the money. I mean, what, one of the things I wish we had done more of, frankly, in the Obama years and is, is really go after the, the individual wealth of this network of people around Putin. Um, and, and you've heard talk about even sanctioning Putin himself, but what do you think the capacity is if, 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 if London and Washington truly wanted to to go after the wealth of Putin's people, to use the title of your book. Do you think that that's possible or do you think they've built guardrails around that? I think it could, that such tactics can be incredibly disruptive. And you can see that in the sharp reaction of the Kremlin to the announcement yesterday that the US and the UK were going to be working in lockstep on targeting some of these individuals that the UK was now going to broaden its ability to sanction those not just directly involved in activities in Ukraine, but those who were closely linked with the Kremlin or maybe engaged in broader geo, geopolitical strategic operations. And obviously, this this is the key. And I think it was Joe Biden was probably the first to point out how the oligarchs, some of them once believed to be independent Yeltsin-era billionaires, have essentially become tools and agents of the Kremlin because, you know, the the, the Putin's uh, security guys, their control of the economy is, is such that they can put anyone in jail. So if you're a Russian billionaire, you owe your entire fortune uh, to staying on the good in the good books of the Kremlin. So one of them mm -hmm. told me, he said, if I get a call from the Kremlin saying I've got to spend $2 billion or $3 billion on this or that strategic pro project, I can't refuse. You have to comply. Um, Piotr Avin of Alpha Bank is essentially said the same to Robert Mueller during the FBI investigation into into the election interference. And he basically told Mueller that, yeah, I get directors from Putin. And if I don't follow them, there are, there are consequences. So we yeah, can see. Yeah. So it's, it's become a real problem for London because obviously London really opened its arms to all this capital um, for, you know, for the past 20 years. And everyone in the West seemed to believe that the more integrated Russian capital capital was into Western systems, the more Russia would have to behave like the West, that it would have to follow the, the Western rules-based order. 
But unfortunately, the the opposite kind of happened because these guys were bringing all the cash in and then it's kind of corrupting our system because they could throw so much more money around than the normal UK kind of lawyers or bankers or politicians could ever normally see. So it became a really, really corrosive process. And I think the UK was really kind of lagging behind in, in recognizing that many of these businessmen aren't kind of independent in the West in sense that they don't always act purely out of self-interest as you would expect a western businessman to do but the very fact that most of their businesses are still in russia means that they're beholden to the kremlin that they might be following orders that there could be an agenda in all the soft power that they've now acquired in london i mean or we had a report by the uk's parliamentary security and intelligence committee which was essentially pointing out one that russian business is now really closely entwined with the Russian state and with the Russian security services. And it was also pointing out that that these guys have such deeply entrenched interests now in London, it's almost impossible to entangle. So the announcement yesterday that the UK was starting to go, would start to go after some of these guys, I think, you know, if they are sanctioned, if, I mean, obviously there has to be a pretty drastic, well, there has to be an invasion for, for that to go ahead, but it would be really disruptive and damaging to them because they've spent the last 20 years building influence networks, you know, where yeah. they're sort of accepted people. They have these armies of lawyers and reputation managers and bankers and uh, some of them own football clubs, which has given them also a great deal of soft power and influence. There are English lords on their boards, which again gives them further access to uh, political power. And some of them are like Russian emigres who may still have business interests back in the motherland and so are therefore also vulnerable to Kremlin orders. And yet they're making massive donations to UK political powers and it's given them yeah. a a real kind of foothold in in our establishment and within our system. So yeah, if that if that changes, I think it would really hit them. One last question I wanted to ask you is just you know the in writing your book, um, you know one of the things that these KGB guys do, uh, you know, is obviously intimidate, threaten, harass, blackmail. You know, I know you faced a winding road. What 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 are uh, are there episode? Is there an episode or two that stands out of 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 the ways in which they tried to influence you or intimidate you while while you were reporting this that 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 stick out to you you know, I kept quite a, a low profile when I was writing it and I spent so long working on it. I think everyone forgot that I was ever going to produce anything. <laughs> so, you know, I tried not to attract too much attention. There was one instance um, maybe in, in Switzerland where some uh, people were a bit worried about what I was looking into and were pretty threatening. But, you know, I think they soon realized that that could backfire. So it wasn't anything serious. Um, I think the bigger threats have come since uh, publication um, and obviously and they came pretty thick and fast last year and we're still trying to understand what was the cause of them. We received a barrage of, of legal complaints first from Roman Obramovich, the owner of Chelsea Football Club, and then from uh, the two billionaires of Alpha Group, Michael Friedman and Piotr Avin, and then followed pretty swiftly by Rosneft, the Kremlin 
Kremlin oil champion and, you know, we still don't know what's behind it. Is it a coincidence that all these legal claims uh, came two months after Alexei Navalny waves my book in the air and, and quotes from it? Did that bring yeah. it to the Kremlin's attention in a way perhaps that it hadn't done so before? We don't know. But um, but certainly that, you know, that's that's threatening for anyone because uh, in London, in the UK, unfortunately, sort of fighting uh, any uh, defamation case, no, no matter how well sourced you believe your kind of words to be and sort of thorough the reporting, you know, fighting any such case, it costs millions and millions of pounds. And when you've got like four of these guys lined up against you, it's, it's really quite tough. But I was very yeah. lucky because my publisher, uh, Collins, you know, they were pretty determined and, and stood by me. Yeah, well, credit to, to HarperCollins and you for sticking sticking with the story and the facts. Um, uh, I imagine that that's, that's not easy. Uh, but thanks so much for helping us um, un- understand some of this and, um, and for all the, the work you're doing. And people should ob- uh, obviously check out the book Putin's People follow you. You're on Twitter and, and your reporting is in Reuters. So uh, thanks for everything you're doing, Catherine. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thanks a lot for having me on. On this episode of Plant Killers, we'll explore one nation's most notorious fruit and vegetable killer, bad dirt. What makes bad dirt so bad? The answer, the ingredients. But fear not, true crime enthusiasts. This story has a happy ending. New miracle Grow organic raised bed in garden soil. It's made with quality organic ingredients from upcycled green waste like compost and aged bark. Unlike the other guys who can't say the same. Looks like bad dirt's murdering days are over. Thanks to miracle Grow. Join us next time on Plant Killers. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. You can host the best backyard barbecue. When you find a professional on Angie to make your backyard the best around. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside. Repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that. Joining me now is the Russian journalist and activist Jana Nemsova, who is the founder of the Boris Nemtsov Foundation for Freedom, which she founded in 2015 after her father was assassinated uh, near the Kremlin. She's also the author, for those of you who speak Russian, uh, currently only in Russian, uh, of the book My Father's Daughter that tells her story. Um, Thanks so much for joining us, Jana. Well, thank you for having me today. Um, well, I, I was really eager to, to talk to you today to step back. Uh, obviously, we'll talk about what's happening uh, in and around Ukraine. Um, but, you know, you and I have gotten to know each other. You know, we spoke from my book. And uh, not only do you have this uh, extraordinary perspective of, of being your father's daughter, but also uh, a career as a journalist yourself. Um, and, and I thought we could just start by, 
you know, going back and, and I wanted to ask you, what what are your first memories of, of, of Vladimir Putin when he came on the political scene and kind of ascended after your father's time um, as deputy prime minister for, for Boris Yeltsin in the 90s? What were your impressions of, of Putin then? Well, uh, first of all, I was 16 years old when uh, Putin came to power in Russia. And now I'm 37. So you have to understand that Putin has been ruling our country for over two decades. Oh, well, uh, he got elected on my birthday. So he got elected in 2000 on the 26th of March. And I basically celebrated uh, my birthday and I didn't follow politics that closely. But uh, I have some vague recollections of Vladimir Putin back then. So the thing is that I totally agree with my father when he said uh, just after uh, Putin's uh, victory, he said like, well, we do not know whom we've just elected. He's like a cat in a sack. He doesn't have any program. We don't know what he will do in the future. So, and I think that I had more or less the same impression. So uh, he basically didn't come up with any program and uh, he was pretty harsh and he uh, started his political, I, I mean, he started his political career long ago, but uh, he was not known to the general public when he uh, became the prime minister of Russia. And then he uh, started this military operation in Dagestan and then in Chechnya uh, following the, uh, uh, the explosions of, uh, of the apartment buildings in Moscow. So, and he was, uh, he was a hardliner and that's what I can, could sense back then. Uh, mm-hmm. And so I basically, I did not vote because I was also only 16 years old, but when I had the right to vote, I have never, ever voted for Vladimir Putin. Never. Yeah. Going ahead to when Putin returns to the presidency in 2012, and then in that time between his return to the presidency and the annexation of Crimea, it seems like, you know, my experience in the White House uh, and then in talking to you, you know, Putin escalated, you know, both his authoritarianism at home and obviously his uh, uh, foreign policy abroad. Um, You know, I remember in talking to you, this is the period of time when your father starts to get detained more frequently in Russia, Um, uh, the time when he's uh, much more aggressive in supporting Bashar al-Assad in Syria. Um, and, and that kind of leads us up to the, the period when he goes into Crimea. I mean, what was your, your sense of, of this, um, the, this return of Putin to the presidency? And, 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 and how, how did you see the connection between the ways in which he was becoming even more repressive at home and also beginning to take this more assertive uh, foreign policy approach with the West? Well, uh, first of all, I was not caught by surprise uh, when I learned that Putin would run for his third term in office. So I, uh, it was very clear for me that he would uh, stay in power for as long as possible. And I, I, I didn't have any illusions, you know, like many others. Many others had illusions, probably also in the White House or elsewhere, 
that uh, you uh, had a lot of hopes that pu- that uh, President Medvedev could change the course and uh, could be a more democratic leader, which did not happen in reality. So it was pretty much uh, clear that uh, it was not a real transit of power because when Medvedev was president of Russia, Putin was the prime minister. And all key decisions, uh, according to many experts, were taken, not uh, in the Kremlin, but in our White House, which is the seat of the Russian government. Uh, mm-hmm. So I, uh, but what uh, touched me really strongly was, of course, uh, the annexation of Crimea. And I personally did not expect that to happen. It was a huge blow. And I understood back then that uh, Vladimir Putin uh, crossed uh, a red line and he, I understood that he would not, never stop. Uh, and that was the point when I asked my father for a meeting. And I wanted, though, I mean, I was not an experienced politician, but I wanted to warn him about uh, extreme risks he would be facing in the future. Uh, And he said like, oh, you know, I do understand all the things. I will tell you when uh, uh, when it's actually dangerous. Now it's not that dangerous. You're exaggerating. Uh, because I was, I was absolutely shocked with this decision, and I was absolutely shocked uh, by the reaction of the Russian public, because I mean, uh, the overwhelming majority of Russians supported the annexation of Crimea. Yeah, it was this uh, what is called that was this patriotic euphoria, and I witnessed it with my own eyes, and people. So uh, it was a very toxic environment uh, also at my workplace because I was among the few uh, who I was against the annexation of Crimea and I understood uh, that the consequences uh, would be really great for our country and for our national economy. But people uh, did not listen to each other. They didn't want to tolerate uh, other opinions they were very much uh, inspired by this action of Putin, both not only those people who, I mean, had supported Putin before, but also those people who hadn't been his supporters. And there was one story which I find really impressive. So uh, my father has a brother and he had his birthday in 2014, somewhere in the summer. And we came to his birthday party and my father, of course, was against the annexation of Crimea. But all my uh, all those people who gathered there, who basically shared my father's uh, political views, they started to argue with him, uh, and he couldn't convince him. Uh, he couldn't convince them that it was it had been a wrong decision. Uh, uh, and what, what, why do you think so many Russians, uh, including Russians who might not? you know, have always loved Putin. Why do you think there was such support for, for the annexation of Crimea? I think it's uh, not, it's not uh, something uh, uh, that is specific to Russia, but I think uh, in many countries you can find the same stories. So it's a big victory with a 
no costs. And yeah, people yeah, tend yeah. to support uh, when the, a country expands its territory and its influence. So, and it was a sweeping opera, military operation uh, with almost with no casualties. And of course, people supported that. And also, it was like I don't know uh, something. It uh, it uh, it has to do with your emotions. So it inspired people because Russia, everybody uh, knew back then and everybody knows that Russia is not the best performing country in the world, right? In terms of its economy and its social sphere, etc. And it was a source of incredible pride. So it, was, it, it had to do with emotions back then. Now you cannot uh, feel that. There are no uh, those patriotic feelings right now. You cannot sense them in Russia. Yeah, no, and I I want to get to that just before we do the 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 last thing about this period. Obviously, is your your father was organizing some of the opposition um, and some protests against not just Crimea but the the war in in the Donbas in eastern Ukraine um, how, how, at the time that he was assassinated. Um, how do you see the link between what was happening in Ukraine and and what happened to your father? Uh, of course, there is an obvious link because you have to understand when Putin annexated uh, uh, Crimea, uh, his rate of approval was extremely high. It was uh, like over 80%. Uh, and of course, uh, uh, because of this incredible support, he could do whatever he wanted to do. At least he thought that he could do whatever he wanted to do. And I think that uh, that was one of the factors why my father was assassinated. Uh, this uh, annexation of Crimea and uh, the military operation in East Ukraine. Of course, these two uh, events are, were obviously interconnected. So, and you, if you you can analyze uh, uh, the following events uh, inside Russia. So. Uh, the Russian opposition, uh, after the annexation of Crimea, uh, members of the Russian opposition uh, were having really hard time, and they now do have hard times. Uh, the regime, uh, since then, the regime has become much more coercive and much more repressive towards uh, any members of the opposition. But not only it's not only about uh, opposition politicians, it's about a lot of people who think differently, who do not hold, who do not believe, who do not hold the official line, who do not share those uh, uh, perceptions uh, of the Kremlin. So, I mean, journalists, activists, lawyers. So almost everybody who is outspoken in Russia is now under extreme pressure. And it's not, once again, it's a typical authoritarian regime which we have in Russia. Nothing new about that. You can look at other countries and you will see more or less the same patterns everywhere in the world. Yeah. Well, and, you know, so and you were obviously, were, like you said, were a financial journalist, um, you know, uh, skipping from 2014 to today, um, what has been the impact on the Russian economy of all the sanctions that were imposed um, after Crimea and after the invasion of eastern Ukraine? What, what impact has that had on the economy in Russia? 
So you have uh, to differentiate between short-term effects and long-term effects. So back in 2014, when I was still a stock market commentator and the sanctions were imposed, I was like shocked. Of course, uh, it uh, uh, obviously hurt our economy tremendously. Not only uh, those sanctions that, which were imposed by Europe and the United States, but also we, uh, I mean, the, the political leadership of Russia imposed its own counter-sanctions. And so uh, they banned uh, food imports and things like that. And so uh, the immediate effect uh, was incredible inflation, a lot of uncertainty, uh, uh, like a fall in uh, stock market prices, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. Uh, but uh, our economy, uh, so our economy uh, managed to adapt to this new environment. So and now those uh, those uh, negative effects uh, have been largely mitigated. But yeah. what is so what what what? But still, sanctions play a role. A negative role, and of course, uh, our economy uh, is currently stagnating. We do not see any substantial growth in our economy, any prospects, uh, and that's a big problem. And I think uh, those sanctions, of course, contribute to our uh, technological uh, mm, to, that we lack uh, behind other countries in terms of. Uh, technological development. Yeah. So looking at things today, the big question, um, you know, there's over 120,000 Russian troops now encircling uh, Ukraine uh, uh, from Russia and Belarus. Um, what what do you think Putin is doing and, and why do you think he's doing it? Oh, I cannot read Putin's mind. I think nobody, even President Biden, can do that. <laughs> so there are a handful <laughs> of theories and I spent like uh, a couple of days uh, reading all those different uh, theories uh, about Putin and what uh, what is on his mind but nobody knows because I mean prediction is a fraud business uh, yeah. at the same time so what I I think that so the situation is very difficult for for Vladimir Putin right now because he uh, has to decide what to do next, either to start a full-scale uh, military operation, it might be a land operation in Ukraine, or to withdraw. I think that the latter is least probable. Uh, yeah. Uh, I know that uh, the whole world uh, is preoccupied, especially political leaders are preoccupied with what's going on uh, uh, between Russia and Ukraine, uh, in Russia, um, people, the general public, they are not interested in all foreign affairs at all. And at the same mm. time, what they think, according to the most recent polls, Russians think that uh, uh, the USA uh, is the country to blame for this escalation. They they think that uh, the U.S. Uh, is forcing Russia into a war. 
Is that is that because of the the Russian media? You know that Putin yes, controls so much. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. People, uh, people just uh, do not want to uh, dig deep into this matter to find out uh, what is right and what is wrong. And in this case, because there is no interest in foreign affairs and in particular in Ukraine, people are tired of this topic. Uh, and uh, of course, they tend to believe to what, uh, to, to what the Russian propaganda is saying. Yeah. And what do you think? Um, do you think that this if he if he were to move into Ukraine with a military operation, do you think that the the support among the Russian people would be the same as it was um, in Crimea, particularly if it if it ends up being a more costly war because the Ukrainians fight back? I mean, how, how would you anticipate the Russian reaction to a, a, a more difficult um conflict and 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 more sanctions and um, and all the consequences that could come from from a war in Ukraine so uh, the uh, rate of approval of Putin right now is stable he has not profited from the current escalation inside the country at all from the political point of view uh, people Russians many Russians are afraid they have a lot of fears. Uh, of uh, a full-scale war, but they think that uh, Russia can hardly avoid it. So they uh, tend to reconcile with the fact that Russia will be at war with Ukraine. But they do not think that it is a war with Ukraine. They think that it's a proxy war between Russia and the United States of America in Ukraine. And Ukraine is regarded as a marionette in, 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 in this situation. Well, I think that uh, unlike, so this uh, war we are talking right now, this probable war, I hope we can still avoid that scenario, but this probable war won't be widely supported in Russia because uh, mm. it involves a lot of costs, a lot of economic costs, a lot of social costs, and uh, there are a lot of, variables which are still unknown. So it's not like a, a sweeping military operation like it was in Crimea. It won't yeah, be that yeah. way. And even the Russian political leadership cannot predict some uh, of the factors. And that's why probably they're reluctant to launch a land operation in Ukraine. And also you have to understand one thing. In Crimea, there was a lot of local support for the annexation of Crimea, inside yeah, Crimea. Yeah, large majority Russian-speaking population in Crimea, right. much more historical ties, right? And in uh, Donbass, the same. Yeah. But in the rest of Ukraine, the situation is different. Local people will not support uh, Russia, and they do not support Putin. So they yeah. tend to uh, have a good attitude towards Russia, Russians, but not towards the Russian political leadership. So, yeah. and it it means that uh, there might be a lot of resistance inside the country. So, it's quite a risky business, and it yeah. might be a fatal mistake to start a full scale military operation in Ukraine. And I hope that uh, Russian uh, 
senior defense authorities or officers do understand those risks that they cannot calculate right now at all. And I'm not speaking about all other like external factors like sanctions, uh, asset free, uh, freezing, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. What do you think about those? I mean, do you think those will have a big impact on Russia? Um, the types of sanctions have been talked about, cutting off access to technologies, sanctioning banks. Um, do you think that that can impact Putin's thinking? Uh I think that uh, the probability. So those, there are different types of sanctions. And yeah. uh, the most uh, uh, impactful ones, uh, the most negative ones for the Russian economy, uh, may be those sanctions imposed uh, uh, on on Russian banks. So, yeah. uh, and the idea is to isolate our bank system from the rest, from the global banking system, which yeah. which is of course. Uh, something uh, really dangerous and it will have an immediate negative impact on our economy, on on the Russian economy. Uh, Well, I think that another uh, dangerous thing for, not for all Russians, but for the Russian elites uh, are, of course, individual sanctions. So uh, they have been widely debated recently uh, and uh, so... Our elites are deeply integrated into into the global um, into the global world into the Western yeah. world. They have bank accounts. They have businesses in the West. Yeah. They have uh, children who uh, live and study in the West, and of course yeah. that is extremely painful. And yeah. uh, Vladimir Putin, his position seems to be really strong. But he has to balance different interests and to please the elites and the general public. And those two goals, you know, (laughs) those are two competitive goals. It's quite difficult. He has a lot of challenges. And of course, he depends on uh, on his elites a lot. And he doesn't want to do something that can profoundly hurt uh, his elites. And you, you obviously know Alexei Navalny and 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 many uh, opposition figures. We've seen, you know, actions taken in recent months, not only to poison Navalny and throw him in prison, but to kind of break up uh, and eliminate, liquidate his network, um, as well as organizations like Memorial, um, a leading civil society organization. What do What do you hear from the people you know in in, in Russian opposition circles about how they are doing and and how they're looking at things? Well, first of all, lots of people fled Russia. Uh, I mean, not a lot of people, but uh, more than 1,000 people, 1,500 people, according to some estimates, fled Russia last year. And those are active people. Those are uh, opposition activists, lawyers, and journalists. Uh, Well, uh, I don't think that they're overly optimistic about the prospects of Russia they do not expect uh, something to change for the better in the foreseeable future. And they are in a very difficult situation right now because they had to uh, flee Russia. They are now based in different post-Soviet republics <laughs> because yeah, you yeah. Can, because of, of the ongoing pandemic, they cannot obtain visas to enter the European Union. Uh, and so they have to start... Uh, uh, to build uh, new lives 
which is very difficult. Uh, so yeah. I think that it's psychologically, uh, it's extremely difficult for many people. And they are, uh, most of them are uh, sober thinkers and they understand that uh, the regime is very flexible, it's very adaptive, and our society is very apathetic and uh, you cannot see any drivers inside the society. And also, you can look at other uh, autocracies across the world. For example, Iran. Iran has been uh, living under severe sanctions for many years. And its regime is still stable, unfortunately. So nobody right now expects any, any changes for the better. And the situation is pretty, is pretty grim. What, what do you think your father would say if he was here today and watching all this? Probably the same thing he well, said. Well, my before. father was a political visionary. That's why he said everything long ago about the yeah. prospects of this regime. So uh, in 2008 uh, and eight, he uh, took part in a conference in Italy. And uh, uh, there is still a video you can find it on YouTube, unfortunately only in Russian, but he predicted he he was good at predictions by the way and he predicted uh that uh the current political line chosen uh by vladimir putin would lead exactly to those consequences which we are witnessing right now isolation bad relationships with um uh our neighbors bad relationships with the west uh uh stagnation in economy uh, so i think that he uh, he he understood. Uh, he understood very early what the cons- consequences would be uh, for Russia, um, and he also understood that uh, it would be a long fight for uh, for any change to uh, happen in Russia. He used to say, like, you know, that it is not a sprint we are involved in. It's a marathon. And we have to live long in Russia to see any change. So I think yeah. so. within a decade, we can see, see something happening. I'm not very optimistic. I'm sorry. No, we'll see. Well, in any case, stay safe and stay well. And, and thanks so much for, uh, for talking with us today. Thank you. Okay, thank you to Catherine Belton and John Anamsova, our two guests today. Thank you for going on this deep dive into the past and present of Vladimir Putin with us. Again, I uh, want to express on behalf of this entire community of people who work on this podcast and listen to this podcast and have been guests on this podcast. I've heard from a, a lot of people who have been guests uh, how much we're thinking of Tommy and Hannah right now. And again, uh, you can look to those organizations if you want to make a donation in support of a cause that I know would mean a lot to Tommy and Hannah. But with that, uh, we will see you guys, um, or I will see you guys certainly um, next week. Uh, I'm sure we'll have more to unpack. And thanks for listening. Pod Save the World is a Crooked Media production. The executive producer is Michael Martinez. Our producer is Haley Muse. It's mixed and edited by Andrew Chadwick. Kyle Seglin is our sound engineer. 
Thanks to our digital team, Elijah Cohn, Yale Freed, and Phoebe Bradford, who film and share our episodes as videos each week. They say plants like music. Yeah, no, like really, they, they respond to the vibrations of it, which means that this playlist you're listening to, the plants are too. You know what else plants like? Organic soil from miracle Grow. It's made with all the best stuff like wood fiber and compost. Plus, it's Omri certified organic, which officially means it's made with superior ingredients. And when you give your plants the stuff that makes them happy, they won't judge you on your iffy playlist. Hear that, plants? So go ahead and give them miracle Grow. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.